This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Twin Beds in Rome by John Updike, which was published in The New Yorker in February of 1964. Joan remarked how like a Marino Marini it was, and it was. Her intuition had leaped 18 centuries. She was so intelligent. Perhaps this was what made leaving her, as a gesture, so exquisite in conception and so difficult in execution. The story was chosen by Matthew Clam, who's the author of the story collection Sam the Cat and Other Stories, and the novel Who is Rich, which came out earlier this year. Hi, Matt. Hi, Deborah. Now, you came on the podcast about five years ago and talked about a story by Charles D'Ambrosio. Yeah. What made you choose Updike this time? I think it wasn't so much that I wanted to read a story by John Updike, is that, but that I wanted to read a, this particular story. What is it about this story that has compelled you so much? It's an uncomfortable story about marital agony. But it's also, a, <laughs> uh, in some ways, a funny story. Um, and it has a certain kind of lightness uh, to it. And it also uh, takes me to Rome, where I sometimes want to go. <laughs> it takes you to Rome in the, in the midst of a very unhappy marriage, which somewhat downplays the, the tourism. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a funny thing because... Ostensibly, it's a story that – well, it, it's a story that introduces the idea of, of this couple parting and about divorce. But I don't think of it as a divorce story. I think – I can't think of uh, great examples, but if plenty of stories about divorce that I've read. This is, uh, to me, a story about marriage and a story about the way good and sort of complex marriage functions. I – you know, here I'm saying that and yet – this is this guy is is not happy. Um, and so what do I know looking from the outside <laughs> in? I mean, what do any of us know looking from the outside in at our friends marriages? But it does seem to me to be a good match in many ways. They seem to have a kind of lovely interaction. And I mean, I'll say more sort of after I read it, but um uh, yeah, I, there are times when I think he's absolutely crazy for wanting out of this thing. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting. Twin Beds in Rome is one of 18 stories that Updike wrote about this couple, Joan and Richard Maples, and their marriage. Um, so obviously he found this marriage hard to break out of yeah. <laughs> himself. You know, the first one, Snowing in Greenwich Village, was published in 1956, and the last one, Grandparenting, was published in 1994. Do you think that in a way you need to read the stories together or can they be read separately and stand on their own? Yeah. I mean, certainly this one stands on its own. I mean, he, yeah. I love this guy so much and his work is just so profoundly outstanding in so many ways that um, I would recommend some of the other ones. And if you were to read, for instance, Wife Wooing or um, Giving Blood, I think is the title of it, um, yeah. it just adds, you know, depth and complexity to it. Yeah. Um, this is a story that doesn't mention the fact that they have children, and yet I knew that they, the the Maples had children. I knew that the Uptics had children, and uh, that uh, helps for me build some of the framework, you know, that is mm -hmm. uh, surrounding this couple in their struggle right now. Um, you know, they have clearly entered into um, that maze of midlife, and they are feeling all of the pressures. Um, that are unstated here, you know, about mm -hmm. the mortgage and parenthood and marital loyalty and the, all those burdens of being a grown-up. Right. I mean, I think all of that, all of those sort of external uh, things that are external to the story, we infer them when we read this. Yeah. I've, when you read the other stories together, you, you know them, but yeah. they're, they're implicit here. Yeah. Well, let's talk some more after the story. And now here's Matthew Clam reading Twin Beds in Rome by John Updike. Twin Beds in Rome The Maples had talked and thought about separation so long it seemed it would never come. For their conversations, increasingly ambivalent and ruthless, as accusation, retraction, 
blow and caress, alternated and canceled, had the final effect of knitting them ever tighter together in a painful, helpless, degrading intimacy. And their lovemaking, like a perversely healthy child whose growth defies every deficiency of nutrition, continued. When their tongues at last fell silent, their bodies collapsed together as two mute armies might gratefully mingle, released from the absurd hostilities decreed by two mad kings. Bleeding, mangled, reverently laid in its tomb a dozen times, their marriage could not die. Burning to leave one another, they left, out of marital habit, together. They took a trip to Rome. They arrived at night. The plane was late, the airport grand. They had left hastily, without plans, and yet, as if forewarned of their arrival, Nimble Italians, speaking perfect English, took their luggage in hand, reserved a hotel room for them by telephone from the airport, and ushered them into a bus. The bus, surprisingly, plunged into a dark, rural landscape. A few windows hung lantern-like in the distance. A river abruptly bared its silver breast beneath them. The silhouettes of olive trees and Italian pines flicked past like shadowy illustrations in an old Latin primer. I could ride this bus forever, Jones said aloud, and Richard was pained, remembering, from the days when they had been content together, how she had once confessed to feeling a sexual stir when the young man at the gas station, wiping the windshield with a vigorous circular motion, had made the body of the car containing her rock slightly. Of all the things she had ever told him, this remained in his mind the most revealing, the deepest glimpse she had ever permitted into the secret woman he could never reach and had at last wearied of trying to reach. Yet it pleased him to have her happy. This was his weakness. He wished her to be happy, and the certainty that, away from her, he could not know if she were happy or not, formed the final, unexpected door barring his way when all others had been opened. So he dried the very tears he had whipped from her eyes, withdrew each protestation of hopelessness at the very point when she seemed willing to give up hope, and their agony continued. Nothing lasts forever, he said now. You can't let me relax a minute, can you? I'm sorry. Do relax. She stared through the window a while, then turned and told him, It doesn't feel as if we're going to Rome at all. Where are we going? He honestly wanted to know, honestly hoped she could tell him. Back to the way things were? No. I don't want to go back to that. I feel we've come very far and have only a little way more to go. She looked out at the quiet landscape a long while before he realized she was crying. He fought the impulse to comfort her, shouted it down as cowardly and cruel, but his hand, as if robbed of restraint by a force as powerful as lust, crept onto her arm. She rested her head on his shoulder. The shawled woman across the aisle took them for lovers and politely glanced away. The bus slipped from the country dark. Factories and residential rows narrowed the highway. An abrupt monument, a massive white pyramid, stricken with light and inscribed with Latin, loomed beside them. Soon they were pressing their faces together to the window to follow the Colosseum itself as, shaped like a shattered wedding cake, it slowly pivoted and silently floated from the harbor of their vision. At the terminal, another lively chain of hands and voices rejoined them to their baggage, settled them in a taxi, and carried them to the hotel. As Richard dropped 600 lira pieces into the driver's hand, they seemed the smoothest, roundest, most tactfully weighted coins he had ever given away. The hotel desk was one flight up. The clerk was young and playful. 
He pronounced their names several times and wondered why they had not gone to Naples. The halls of the hotel, which had been described to them at the airport as second class, were nevertheless of rose marble. The marble floor carried into their room. This and the amplitude of the bathroom and the imperial purple of the curtains blinded Richard to a serious imperfection until the clerk, his heels clicking in satisfaction with the perhaps miscalculated tip he had received, was far down the hall. Twin beds, he said. They had always had a double bed. Joan asked, Do you want to call the desk? How important is it to you? I don't think it matters. Can you sleep alone? I guess, but... It was delicate. He felt they had been insulted. Until they finally parted, it seemed impertinent for anything, even a slice of space, to come between them. If the trip were to kill or cure, and this was, for the tenth time, their slogan, then the attempt at a cure should have a certain technical purity, even though, or rather all the more because, in his heart he had already doomed it to fail. And also there was the material question of whether he could sleep without a warm, proximate body to give his sleep shape. But what? Joan prompted. But it seems sort of sad. Richard, don't be sad. You've been sad enough. You're supposed to relax. This isn't a honeymoon or anything. It's just a little rest we're trying to give each other. You can come visit me in my bed if you can't sleep. You're such a nice woman, he said. I can't understand why I'm so miserable with you. He had said this, or something like it, so often before that she, sickened by simultaneous doses of honey and gall, ignored the entire remark and unpacked with a deliberate serenity. On her suggestion, they walked into the city, though it was ten o'clock. Their hotel was on a shopping street that at this hour was lined with lowered steel shutters. At the far end, an illuminated fountain played. His feet, which had never given him trouble, began to hurt. In the soft, damp air of the Roman winter, his shoes seemed to have developed hot, inward convexities that gnashed his flesh at every stride. He could not imagine why this should be, unless he was sensitive to marble. For the sake of his feet, they found an American bar, entered, and ordered coffee. Off in a corner, a drunken American voice droned on and on through the grooves of a curiously unintelligible and distinctly female circuit of complaints. The voice, indeed, was not so much like a man's as like a woman's, deepened by being played at a slower speed on the phonograph. Hoping to cure the almost dizzy emptiness within him, Richard ordered a hamburger that proved to be more tomato sauce than meat. Outside on the street, he bought a paper cone of hot chestnuts from a sidewalk vendor. This man, whose thumbs and fingertips were charred black, agitated his hand until Richard placed three hundred lira into it. In a way, he welcomed being cheated. It made him an American in Rome. The Maples returned to the hotel and, side by side on their twin beds, easily fell into a solid sleep. That is, Richard assumed, in the cavernous accounting rooms of his subconscious, that Joan also slept well. But when they awoke in the morning, she told him, You were terribly funny last night. I couldn't go to sleep, and every time I reached over to give you a little pat to make you think you were in a double bed, you'd say, Go away and shake me off. He laughed in delight. Did I really? In my sleep? It must have been. Once you shouted, Leave me alone, so loud I thought you must be awake, but when I tried to talk to you, you were snoring. Isn't that funny? I hope I didn't hurt your feelings. No, 
It was refreshing not to have you contradict yourself. He brushed his teeth and ate a few of the cold chestnuts left over from the night before. They breakfasted on hard rolls and bitter coffee in the hotel and walked again into Rome. His shoes resumed their inexplicable torture. With its strange, almost mocking attentiveness to their unseen needs, the city thrust a shoe store under their eyes. They entered, and Richard bought, from a gracefully reptilian young salesman, a pair of black alligator loafers. They were too tight, being smartly shaped, but they were dead. They did not pinch with the vital, outraged vehemence of the others. Then the maples, she carrying the Hachette guidebook and he his American shoes in a box, walked down the Via Nazionale to the Victor Emmanuel monument, a titanic flight of stairs leading nowhere. What was so great about him, Richard asked. Did he unify Italy? Or was that Cavour? Is he the funny little king in a farewell to arms? I don't know, but nobody could be that great. You can see now why the Italians don't have an inferiority complex. Everything is so huge. They stood looking at the Palazzo Venezia until they imagined Mussolini frowning from a window, climbed the many steps to the Piazza del Campidoglio, and came to the equestrian statue of Marcus Aurelius on the pedestal by Michelangelo. Joan remarked how like a Marino Marini it was, and it was. Her intuition had leaped 18 centuries. She was so intelligent. Perhaps this was what made leaving her, as a gesture, so exquisite in conception and so difficult in execution. They circled the square. The portals and doors all around them seemed closed forever, like the doors in a drawing. They entered, because it was open, the side door of the church of Santa Maria in Aracoli. They discovered themselves to be walking on sleeping people, life-sized tomb reliefs worn nearly featureless by footsteps. The fingers of the hands folded on the stone breasts had been smoothed to finger-shaped shadows. One face, sheltered from where behind a pillar, seemed a vivid soul trying to rise from the all-but-erased body. Only the maples examined these reliefs, cut into a floor that once must have been a glittering lake of mosaic. The other tourists, clustered around the chapel containing, in slippers and vestments, behind glass, the child-sized greenish remains of a pope. They left by the same side door and descended steps and paid admission to the ruins of the Roman Forum. The Renaissance had used it as a quarry. Broken columns lay everywhere, loaded with perspective, like a decirico. Joan was charmed by the way birds and weeds lived in the crevices of this exploded civic dream. A delicate rain began to fall. At the end of one path, they peeked in glass doors, and a small, uniformed man with a broom limped forward and admitted them, as if to a speakeasy, to the abandoned church of Santa Maria Antigua. The pale, vaulted air seemed innocent of worship. The seventh-century frescoes seemed recently nervously executed. As they left, Richard read the question in the broom man's smile and pressed a tactful coin into his hand. The gentle rain continued. Joan took Richard's arm as if for shelter. His stomach began to hurt, a light, chafing ache at first, scarcely enough to distract him from the pain in his feet. They walked along the Via Sacra, through roofless pagan temples carpeted in grass. The ache in his stomach intensified. Uniformed guards old men standing this way and that in the rain like hungry gulls, beckoned them toward further ruins, further churches, but the pain now had blinded Richard to everything but the extremity of his distance from anything that might give him support. He refused admittance to the Basilica of Constantine and asked instead for the Ushita, 
he did not feel capable of retracing his steps. The guard, seeing a source of tips escaping, dourly pointed toward a small gate in a nearby wire fence. The maples lifted the latch, stepped through, and stood on the paved rise overlooking the Colosseum. Richard walked a little distance and leaned on a low wall. Is it so bad? Joan asked. Oddly bad, he said. I'm sorry. It's funny. Do you want to throw up? No, it's not like that. His sentences came jerkily. It's just a sort of gripe. High or low? In the middle. What could have cost it? The chestnuts? No, it's just, I think, being here, so far away from anywhere, with you, and not knowing why. Shall we go back to the hotel? Yes, I think if I could lie down. Shall we get a taxi? They'll cheat me. That doesn't matter. I don't know our address. We know sort of. It's near that big fountain. I'll look up the Italian for fountain. Rome is full of fountains. Richard, you aren't doing this just for my benefit. He had to laugh. She was so intelligent. Not consciously. It has something to do with having to hand out tips all the time. It's really an ache. It's incredible. Can you walk? Sure. Hold my arm. Shall I carry your shoebox? No. Don't worry, sweetie. It's just a nervous ache. I used to get them when I was little, but not so bad. They descended steps to a thoroughfare thick with speeding traffic. The taxis they hailed carried heads in the rear and did not stop. They crossed the Via dei Fori Imperiali and tried to work their way back against the sideways tug of interweaving streets to the territory containing the fountain, the American bar, the shoe store, and the hotel. They passed through a market of bright food. Garlands of sausages hung from striped canopies. Heaps of lettuce lay in the street. He walked stiffly as if the pain he carried were precious and fragile, holding one arm across his abdomen seemed to ease it slightly. The rain and Joan, having been in some way the pressures that had caused it, now became the pressures that enabled him to bear it. Joan kept him walking. The rain masked him, made his figure less distinct to passers-by, and thus less distinct to himself, and so dimmed his pain. The blocks seemed cruelly uphill and downhill. They climbed a long slope of narrow pavement beside the Banca d'Italia. The rain lifted. The pain, having expanded into every corner of the chamber beneath his ribs, had armed itself with a knife and now began to slash the walls in hope of escape. They reached the Via Nazionale, blocks below the hotel. The shops were unshuttered, the distant fountain was dry. He felt as if he were leaning backward, and his mind seemed a kind of twig, a twig that had deviated from the trunk and chosen to be this branch instead of that one, and chosen again and again, becoming finer with each choice, until, finally, there was nothing left for it but to vanish into air. In the hotel room, he lay down on his twin bed, settled his overcoat over him, curled up, and fell asleep. When he awoke an hour later, everything was different. The pain was gone. Joan was lying in her bed, reading the Hachette Guide. He saw her, as he rolled over, as if freshly, in the kind of cool library light in which he had first seen her. Only he knew, calmly, that since then she had come to share his room. It's gone, he told her. You're kidding. 
I was all set to call up a doctor and have you taken to a hospital. No, it wasn't anything like that. I knew it wasn't. It was nervous. You were dead white. It was too many different things focusing on the same spot. I think the forum must have depressed me. The past here is so heavy. Also, my shoes hurting bothered me. Darling, it's Rome. You're supposed to be happy. I am now. Come on. You must be starving. Let's get some lunch. Really? You feel up to it? Quite. It's gone. And, except for a comfortable reminiscent soreness that the first swallow of Milanese salami healed, it was. The maples embarked again upon Rome, and, in this city of steps, of sliding, unfolding perspectives, of many-windowed surfaces of sepia and rose ochre, of buildings so vast one seemed to be outdoors in them, the couple parted. Not physically, they rarely left each other's sight. But they had at last been parted. Both knew it. They became with each other, as in the days of courtship, courteous, gay, and quiet. Their marriage let go like an overgrown vine whose half-hidden stem has been slashed in the dawn by an ancient gardener. They walked arm in arm through seemingly solid blocks of buildings that parted under examination into widely separated slices of style and time. At one point she turned to him and said, Darley, I know what was wrong with us. I'm classic and you're Baroque. They shopped and saw and slept and ate. Sitting across from her in the last of the restaurants that, like oases of linen and wine, had sustained these level, elegiac days, Richard saw that Joan was happy. Her face, released from the terrible tension of hope, had grown smooth. Her gestures had taken on the flirting irony of the young. She had become ecstatically attentive to everything about her, and her voice, as she bent forward to whisper a remark about a woman and a handsome man at another table, was rapid as if the very air of her breathing had turned thin and free. She was happy, and, jealous of her happiness, he again grew reluctant to leave her. That was Matthew Clam reading Twin Beds in Rome by John Updike. The story appeared in The New Yorker in February of 1964. It was included in the collection Too Far to Go in 1979, and again in The Maple Stories, which was published by Everyman in 2009. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com actionplan 
Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc. Copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Matt, as you were saying before, Updike doesn't give us a whole lot of information in this story about what comes before. You know, we know from other stories that the Maples have kids. We don't know it from this story. We don't know how old they are, how long they've been together. Do you think that matters for someone who just reads or hears this story? You know, I think that that first paragraph, it's just one of the killer paragraphs of all time. And I think that once you read that first paragraph, you know, you just know that they've been through. um, They've been through the mill. They've been through the mill. And I, um, I'm sure, I mean, I, I have a child, so I'm, I can't say, but I think that uh, people without children can abuse themselves just as much. But it's definitely add children to the mix. And this um, kind of mangled and bloodied marriage is doesn't, I think, seem that unfamiliar to anybody who who's married. Um, so, <laughs> um, I, I just think that the first paragraph sets us into this world with um, all of the 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 wounds of a of a longish marriage, you know, are evident. And I think the uh, the 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 other stuff, marriage with um, all of those responsibilities that go along with it, is is kind of implied. Mm-hmm. What do you think about the way these two communicate with each other? I mean, you were saying earlier that in some ways it's sort of lovely because they have this deep personal knowledge of of one another. But at the same time, especially in that bus ride into Rome, they're just constantly willfully misunderstanding each other. Joan wants to. Joan's sort of wistful about the scenery, and and Richard thinks she's talking about some time years ago when she got aroused in a gas station. Um, <laughs> and you just you feel this utter, you know, failure to really pay attention to what the other person is going through. It's funny that you say um, that they're misunderstanding each other. I it hadn't occurred to me that 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 she was implying that riding the bus forever was a sexual turn on for her. I instead seem to be much harder on him. I, I actually think that there's a there's a sort of dishonesty in this story. I think that he is the one who's calling all the shots, and he's the one who's smashing this thing. And she seems to me to be kind of helplessly, maternally, you know, linked to him. I mean, just, you know, like maternal, uh, even against her own wishes maybe, but she's... I mean, I really there's a there's a part of me that thinks he's absolutely crazy for wanting to leave this woman, um, and the times. There's a part of him that thinks that too, <laughs> and there's a part of him that thinks that too. Obviously, yeah. Um, it is interesting that the couple of times that she seems to be coherently whole, like when she's just sitting there and enjoying the bus ride, it seems to activate his aggression. It activates some kind of jealousy in him that, that yeah. it's possible for her to feel happy or, or content without input from him, yeah? Yeah, he seems to finally, in the last section of the story, be okay with it, breathe a sort of sigh of relief that they have separated. But by the end of the story, it has again presented this problem, which is, uh, yeah, he simply says, you know, that she's she's, she's happy and he, he can't uh, stand it. He becomes jealous of her happiness and he doesn't yeah. want to part with her because of it. You know, she has some kind of inherent um, ability, you know, not just to be uh, to, for self-preservation, but for equanimity that I think drives him a little nuts. Right. He wants to be the cause of her happiness. He wants to be the cause of her happiness. He just wants to take credit for it is, is what I sense. So if she seems to be getting pleasure somewhere else, even if it's from the movement of the bus, it tears at him. It undermines him. Yeah. Yeah. There's that wonderful image when they are on the bus driving in where they, they see the Colosseum and it looks like a, a shattered wedding cake. Yeah. There's a sense of, of their marriage in ruins, you know, like that Colosseum. And yet people keep going to it. People keep visiting it. Yeah. Um, the tourists keep coming and they keep they keep coming to their own, you know, shattered I had a ru- marriage. Yeah. I had this sort of running joke with my wife who quoted she's a psychoanalyst and she was quoting a psychoanalyst who said marriage is the great cage everybody who's in the cage wants out and everybody who's out of the cage wants in 
And <laughs> I, the running joke is that we together would give that as a toast at other people's weddings, much to their sort of horror. Um, <laughs> but we we don't do that. But it is funny, right, that um, like as you're saying, you know, that they have a marriage to compare to the Colosseum is noteworthy. So when he compares the Colosseum to a wedding cake or whatever, you get the sense that that there was something glorious about it and that it's shattered now. But even the fact that there was something glorious about it brings up the question of, of why he can't live in that moment. But I guess the question for me is, if they can have such a lovely time when they finally do have a lovely time around Rome, why can't they do that all the time? There's something really painful about what is obvious to me, which is that they get along. And yet mm -hmm. um, he is intent on smashing this. And I mean, who doesn't want to every once in a while, who doesn't have the sort of impulse to smash a beautiful thing that's in their possession? I mean, if you closed your eyes and imagined that maybe your, your kitchen was about to be renovated, so you could go in there with a sledgehammer and just smash it all up or just, you know, I have a friend who when she would fight with her husband, who she's now divorced from, they would throw crockery, you know, like break stuff. And I always thought that that was really entertaining. And, you know, he was um, Latin American. So I thought, oh, that sounds really passionate and exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I have a friend who when he broke up with a girlfriend uh, said she took took out a gun and shot up his cookware. Oh, my God. She took all his frying pans out and shot up. I, I guess that makes sense because the the frying pans are so sturdy. I mean, some of that stuff is cast <laughs> iron. You're going to need something pretty strong to do some damage there. Well, so why do you think we're in Rome? Why did Updike choose Rome? And, and how does he use the kind of geography of the city to tell this story? Well, I mean, there's two things. One is that um, Rome is uh, romantic. <laughs> and and he ch I think he chose it because, I mean, I want to go to Rome with the person I love and walk around those ruins um, and and just be happy to be breathing in that air. Uh, I've spent some time in Rome. In fact, my uh, a friend of mine lives right down the street from the Forum, and I uh, mm -hmm. it's it's a incredibly beautiful place that has this feeling of all of history being alive at once. And uh, maybe he was playing with some of that idea of the past being so alive. And so he says at one time something about how burdensome it is. But I think maybe there was a, an urge of Updike's to, to also call the history of this couple maybe, uh, you know, back to life and, and mm -hmm. somehow bring that into this um, experience of the two of them together. The other thing. Which is just weird um, when you're talking about a short story that, of course, stands on its own is that I read I, – I'm, I'm actually not a big, like, you know, archaeologist about the writers I love. And I, I, I tend to like my writers dead when I've had chances to meet some of them. Like, it, I don't need that. I, I, I like just what's on the page and I don't need to be friends with writers who I love and I still get – I get the most out of the, the work itself. But <laughs> I read some of Adam Begley's biography and he had, he mentions this story and you know it's just and this guy is just he's so amazing they were in France they were living in France and he and his this is the updikes this is the real updikes you know and then they took yeah. a trip to Rome and he came home you know and he uh, turned a story around in a matter of of weeks and uh for him there was something essentially right about setting the story in Rome it seems absolutely to work for me so i have no argument with the fact that he was drawing off of the material of his life. I don't think it uh, muddles the story at all. Um, I think it presents to us even more clearly that there is an opportunity for romance here and that that opportunity is somehow thwarted, obviously, with the title and the fact that the two beds aren't together as one big bed, but also the fact that they're in this place that anybody with a half a brain should enjoy and, and you know, feel seduced by and Right. And instead they go to the American bar and have a, a hamburger that's all tomato sauce. <laughs> and <laughs> later, although maybe it's just his palate. I mean, later when he says that he's cured by the salami, I was like, that is not the first thing you should eat after you have a stomach cake. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems as though this walk where they, you know, they passing all of these 
monuments which sort of befuddle them. They can't figure out what the Victor Emmanuel monument is. And and then this parade of churches and, and ruins, it's almost punitive at the same time that his shoes are punishing him yeah. <laughs> for, for doing this. Yeah, I guess you say punitive when they're on this going through this parade of monuments. I think it also brings up the, the fact that they're inside their marriage and that their marriage is um, baffling to them. And I think that for some of us, I'm one of these people, you know, for whom marriage is, is pretty all-consuming. And I think, you know, there are, even in our marriages that function, we feel that the things that we need to survive <laughs> Some of them have been taken away or taken up. You know, the, the marriage sort of takes the place of that stuff. I'm saying this as I sit here in Los Angeles. I'm now working on a television show for a few months, and I'm away. I'm 3,000 miles away from my wife and my daughter. And um, there are some things that are easier to process. And mm-hmm. you don't have to make as fancy a dinner when you don't want to. <laughs> and <laughs> you can uh, you can sleep with your feet outside of the blankets if you want, and no one will give you any feedback about that. Let's say your feet are hot, but the rest of you is cold. You can do that. And I mean, I'm making a joke <laughs> of it, but just the, these very basic sorts of of things, you know, are in in some ways bewildering. And I think midlife is in some ways bewildering. I think it's a it's a time in life we enter into. And despite our best hopes, we are sort of unprepared and the disruption is just enormous. And especially with children, you know, we run into these problems and we don't have answers. And the people who try to provide the answers for us, those are the answers that work for them. Anybody who's ever had a child who won't sleep through the night, you get tips from everybody and those don't work at all for you, but they work for them. And, you know, this couple, I just have a lot of sympathy for them because they're struggling. Um, yeah. And, you know, anybody who says, anyone who were to say to me, you know, if anyone says I'm happily married, that I always catch on that. And it's, I I mean, it's a weird thing for me to catch on to be saying this in, you know, in conventional society. I should be, I should be able to say that that's a great thing. But I feel like life, marriage is like, like, just substitute the word life, you know. And anyone who were to say to me, like, life is easy. And I wake up every day and it's, you know, (laughs) one day after another of absolute bliss. I would just be like, well. No, I don't believe that. And and so yeah. it's it's just one of the reasons I love this story is because it's it's a sort of homeopathic cure for my own the stigma I think I carry around feeling like there are times when I struggle so much to be a, a mm-hmm. married person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On the other hand, no one ever really says I'm happily single. I mean, <laughs> right, yeah. Unless it unless it's after a divorce. Right. You know? Right. Um so on this walk Richard has these two two ailments. One is first that his his shoes hurt him, and I, I, again I'm I'm back at that word punitive because his his shoes seem to be deliberately hurting him, you know, in a way they never have before. And then he he buys these new shoes from a reptilian salesman. The shoes are made of alligator, and and yet these ones are dead. You know, they don't bite him. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. There's something very strange. I mean, it's one of the few moments in the story that feels very deliberately metaphorical, no? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, she at one point she says, you're not doing this for my benefit, are you? Or something to that effect. Yeah. And I think – and I was thinking, well, what does she mean by that? And I think she's – It's about the stomachache, right? I think it's – Yeah. It, and I was thinking, is she, is she saying you're just try, you're trying to show me – you're trying to prove to me in in sort of body and not just in your words, but in your body, that, you know, that that it's this difficult for you to be around me. Do you think that's what she's getting at? Yeah, or that he that he's just feeling so much pain over the situation that it's yeah. it's embodying itself in him. Yeah, which right. Um, I mean, I think anybody, I think the other person loves when if you're in a couple and you're struggling together, the other person breaks down and cries. It just means it's just powerful. So this guy, like a lot of men, is short on tears for himself. He can't, he, you know, obviously he's physicalizing something here, you know, the psychosomatic responses to being with her or whatever. I mean, the other way to look at it is they just got off a, uh, a transatlantic flight in 1964. <laughs> it's probably a little <laughs> beat up, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, what do you think the stomachache is? I mean, he blames it on being there and, and he blames it on having to hand out so many tips. 
But then at one point it's described as this sort of pain that he's carrying with him and he's supporting it with with one arm around his belly as if it were precious and fragile. It, it almost feels as though he's pregnant or, you know, it's, I, it's filling the chamber beneath his ribs, you know. Yeah, right. I mean, he says that the rain and Joan, the presence of her and the effect it has on him is sort of girding mm-hmm. him at the moment. But I want to turn to a page here. So I had at my disposal here the book version where he did a little bit more to the story mm-hmm. than the New Yorker version. And um, in the line, which is at the end of this conversation about his stomach ache, he says, she's like, should I carry your shoebox? She's just worried about him and like, can you walk and this kind of stuff? And he's like, don't worry. It's just a nervous ache. I used to get them when I was little. And then um, now I've forgotten what the, the the version I just read is. But in the book version, he says – um, don't worry, sweetie. It's just a it's just a nervous ache. I used to get them when I was little, but I was braver then. And that mm. line, "but I was braver then," really just kills me because he acts like a child throughout this story. He's treated yeah. like a child. I mean, Joan says, "Do you want to throw up?" I mean, that's not a, a line that a, a person says who hasn't been around people who throw <laughs> up. And I usually that's little kids, right? So you know, she's treating him like a little kid. She's in, she's got all this maternal the- instinct going. And she keeps patting him during the night. It's very maternal. Night. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she's, you know, she's really there for him and um, in this nurturing way. And then he's trying to explain the stomachache to her. And at the end, but I was braver then, he's trying to get up the nerve to leave her. And, and what's also crushing about this is that you know that the story was published in 1964 and that the, the, the real couple did have their struggle. They didn't get divorced for another 10 years. Well, nor do the, nor do the Maples. Right. These people really hang in there. And so that is – and I, I say this acknowledging the fact that I fault him for faulting her. I just think of her – I just think it's hard to I, – I don't understand why he wants to leave her. And yet this really does give me sympathy for him. I mean the the physicalizing of the pain is convincing in, in a certain way. But this line, which unfortunately isn't in the story that I just read, but it's in the book version, you know, but I was braver than it just shows me that he's, you know, he's trying to get his nerve up. And he's alone in it. And it's kind of uh, heartbreaking that he is wandering around his marriage and wandering through the important parts of his life and wandering through Rome. All of these treasures around him, the most ordinary things in life that bring all sorts of bliss to us who enjoy having the child and enjoy the benefits of a long-term partner that he's there, he's denied them, and he's um, just looking for a way out. Is is uh, whatever? It just makes it very real to me. Yeah. Oh, and then he goes back to the hotel and lies down, curls up in this kind of fetal position. And when he wakes up, he's cured. Yeah. And in a sense, in his mind, at least, or in both of their minds, the the marriage is over. What happens in that nap, and and how do those how do those twin beds play into it? I hadn't thought of that. That his the, the fact that he has. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just thinking. You know, he puts the coat over himself. He has a good nap. His stomach ache is gone. I don't think he knows, and I'm not even sure what Updike was getting at. There is that this guy is suffering from a sort of existential problem, and that I guess yeah, now that he finally has the bed to himself. He can see a way out and the the weight has lifted. I'm not sure I buy that because he wakes up beside her and there she – That's the, that was what I wanted to tell you earlier. When he looks at her and sees her in the library light, that mm-hmm. is a feeling many of us have with people who we've loved for a long time over many years. It could be a sibling or whatever. When you see them in their sort of best form or in the form, you know, that for instance, a, you know, a spouse or whatever – they they look just the way they did when you met them. That is a very powerful mm-hmm. statement. And that is one of those places where I want to sort of reach into the story and say to him, see, she's still there. That's her. You know, yeah. you, you see her as she is. And you can have that outside of this moment. Um, he's proving it to us that he knows that, although he barely knows it. And then they have this terrific, really nice, I think, uh, very light, Time. I think that's a, the real evidence of a, a relationship I want to be in is one that can become light. And, and, and mm-hmm. it is for them. You know, all the weight of all the monuments seems to lift up as they're wandering around there at the end. But it seems to lift up because 
they feel they've made this decision that the marriage is over and then they can just enjoy it. Right. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is they've gone through the difficult part of whatever their interaction brings up and that now they can enjoy the fruits of their labor, you know. Um, I mean you're right and I, I think you are right that they that they of course have this nice time because they know – although the they is the problem that I have with this. I see her as a person of her time. I mean, you know, this – this she's reacting to him. She's responding to him. She's trying to do what he says. I mean, when she says – you know, she suggests in the, in the beginning of the story, you know, he says, where are we going? And she says, back to the way things were. There's a question mark there, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I almost think that if he says, you know, yes, I think that's where we're going and I think – uh, I, I just, I just think she, she is w- open to the possibility of them continuing, and he is not, and he's sort of calling the shots. And you know, I when I first read this story, I was younger, and uh, I think I probably read this story uh, twenty years ago for the first time, and I couldn't help but think of my own parents' marriage. You know, the story was written the year I was born, and I saw in them, you know, the kinds of dynamics that, you know, people of that generation had, which, you know, the man is calling the shots and the woman is trying in all these different ways to comply and is in some ways, you know, really powerless and, you know, no longer, right, technically legally powerless, but I don't know what kind of deal a woman got in 1964 when she got a divorce, but financially it's, you know, probably wasn't so hot. And anyway, you know, she, I see her, as uh, as as not being part of this decision, and that's kind of crushing too. And yet she has this equanimity. She has this ability um, when she's unpacking. Updike says about her um, that she ignores his his remarks. He has just said, you know, you're such a nice woman. I can't understand why I'm so miserable with you. And then and then she she just ignores this stuff. It, it's right. sort of the honey and gall that he has just, you know, given her. Uh, she she cancels itself out and she unpacks with deliberate serenity. That deliberate serenity, yeah. it's a part of her nurturing instinct or, I mean, her, her, her mothering identity that she has to put on in this marriage. But it's also, you know, it's, it's part of her power. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, in a sense, she's she's powerless and he calls the shots. But in another sense, she's the only adult in the room and he's this little kid who needs babying. And, you know, I, I love the fact that she asks him if he can sleep alone. I mean, and maybe this is a, a sort of, you know, barbed reference to, to his cheating on her. But maybe it's it's simply, you know, do you think you can? Because, of course, she can. Yeah. You know, there's no question yeah. <laughs> whether she'll be able to go to sleep. Yeah. And in a way, she's having to take care of him the whole time. She is the responsible adult there. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, you have that moment at the end where she's happy because she's let go of hope. You know, the the hope was what was keeping her sort of enslaved in this sure. relationship. Sure. And, you know, that kind of limbo, no matter where you stand, would drive anybody nuts. So just, you know, whether it's her decision or it's whether it's his philandering that has driven them, you know, into this a wrecked place, the idea that it's this is finally we're finally turning a corner here would would make anybody happy. Yeah, and then of course they haven't really turned a corner. I mean, how do you how do you read the ending here? You think it's all just going to restart? Yeah, I mean it's just such a great ending. I, I love this ending, <laughs> and I think it goes with the craziness of the first paragraph. I mean, the paragraph has this great perversity in it, which is you know that they're they're finally when their their sort of verbal warring has ended, their bodies continue to happily uh, nourish the other. I think that that's so, such a funny uh, twist. And then at the end of that first paragraph, they, they decide uh, that the best thing for their smashed marriage is to go away. But of course, they do it together. I just think that's so funny. And then yeah, at the end, yeah. it really ties up this same idea, which again is a sort of you know, a circular idea that he has yeah. finally been in her, uh, the glow of her happiness. And she's ecstatically attentive to everything around her. He's just, you know, totally entranced. Um, and because of that, he realizes uh, <laughs> he's reluctant to leave her. I mean, this would drive anybody nuts, you know, because <laughs> she knows well, they... that. She's like, oh, right, here he comes again. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's become a, a whole person in her own right simply by being separated from him, yeah. and that makes him want her. He didn't want the half of the other half of his bad marriage. He wants this this woman who's free of it. Right, which brings up, you know, the moment in, I think it's the title is Here Come the Maples. It's the story of them getting their, the papers, their divorce papers. At the end of the story, he gives her a kiss, and he's, yeah. he's excited to do that, and she gives it. It's a very, you know, I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a very romantic sort of thing in the in the in the worst way. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it, it is interesting that this is the fourth of eighteen Maple stories, and the divorce happens in number seventeen. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so they've got they've got uh, you know thirteen more stories to get through. Yeah before they actually get that divorce. Yeah. And, you know, I'm I'm not an Updike scholar, and I haven't read everything of his by any means, but my favorite work of his is, is comes out of that period in his life and his, obviously, you know, the effect that she had on him was profound, not just because she gave him his four children um, and his best material. I'm talking about the real people, of course, but, like... Mm-hmm. There's something really powerful in this couple. Yeah. Going back to the twin beds, I suppose you, you have in that first paragraph this this explanation that even when the marriage is dying around them, the sex isn't dying. Yeah. They're, they're still doing that. So then they, for the first time ever, they're put in separate beds. And that uh, eliminates that possibility of coming back together in that way. And that may, it may be as simple as that, what sort of frees them from each other yeah. momentarily. Yeah, right. <laughs> Right. I mean, you know, it's impressive. They're so, you know, he's still so hot for her that he can't seem to clear his mind, even after all of this marriage stuff. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's sort of uh, whatever we have to um, uh, applaud his libido. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting if, you, you know, you're you're drawing the parallels between uh, John Updike and his, his first wife and uh, and the the Maples, Richard and Joan. Um if it's there, he's not very nice to himself. <laughs> if he's putting himself into Richard, he, he's got a certain understanding of his own weaknesses, I suppose. It's so funny because, you know, you think about the sort of giant um, white male writers of, you know, the 20th century. You know, you've got uh, your uh, Hemingway who lives life without, you know, uh, suffering the consequences. And then you've got Mabel who is this kind of tyrant. You know, but he's couched in this kind of nervous Nelly, slightly whining married man who's like, you know, <laughs> walking around Rome complaining about his feet. Right. Hemingway would have been making the earth move. <laughs> right. Yeah. So your your new novel, Who's Rich, also deals with a marriage in which the couple loves each other and is not communicating very well. Yeah. And also aren't splitting up. Do you feel that that sort of Updike's marriage portraits were were a help to you or an inspiration to you for that book? Yeah, I mean, you know, a help in that he uh, he was unafraid to say the unsayable. And you know, I I have I have lots of married friends where I live in Washington D.C. and uh, lots of people who are quote happily married, and it's not really. Um, uh, it's 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 very hard for people to talk about marital struggles and much harder to talk about than, for instance, when I was a dating person and all we talked about was I'm never going to find anybody and I blew it and <laughs> on Sunday I should have done this and she had her feet here and I was sitting here and all of this analysis and all – when you're in it, when you never are not in it, I think – it's it's just much harder to get perspective. So to have this guy so unafraid and yet obviously knows an, an, a lot about the dynamics of a, a marriage that's been around for a while and that is, mm-hmm. you know, holding up these kind of big responsibilities, um, that was really helpful to me. I had a sense when I was writing my book that someone was going to just pull up in front of my house and kick in the door and kill me with a shotgun. And I wasn't sure if it was my wife or if it was a friend or someone <laughs> who's uh, uh, some part of their identity I had uh, mildly uh, co-opted. But um, I did feel, you know, 
that I needed to gird myself to, to go on to write this thing. And uh, yet, whatever, I felt that, it, you know, I was I had to be as honest as I could and that I, I really do have this experience of of the difficulty of conducting myself in the world as a as a grown up. And I wanted to communicate all of that. And and he was extremely helpful to me for that is continues to be. Well, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Deborah. John Updike was the author of more than 20 novels and a dozen story collections. He won two Pulitzer Prizes, two National Book Awards, and the National Medal of Arts, among many others. Updike published his first story in The New Yorker in 1954 when he was 22 and went on to publish more than 160 more before he died in 2009 at age 76. Matthew Clam's first novel, Who is Rich, was published earlier this year. In 1999, he was included in the New Yorker's list of 20 fiction writers for the new millennium. He's been publishing stories in the magazine since 1993. Want to see your favorite writers on stage? At the New Yorker Festival, October 6th through 8th, you can attend conversations and panels featuring incoming poetry editor Kevin Young, novelists Edward St. Aubin, Azar Nafisi, George Saunders, Jennifer Egan, Sherman Alexi, and more. See the full festival lineup and buy tickets at newyorker.com slash festival or download the festival app. You can download more than 120 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, including one in which Matthew Clam reads a story by Charles D'Ambrosio. Or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazines read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>